We are starting a new series this morning as we move through the fall. We are going to uh, work our way through the book of Nehemiah, or at least most of it. It is uh, often a, a place that we go when we're in the middle of building something, as we are, and we will watch. If you've been seeing even just the pictures this morning, the frame goes up. That, that will continue to go on, and uh, we should be, have walls and be walled in here by before Christmas. Uh, you should have the outsides of a building. And so that, that moves forward as we do that. We recognize, and one of the reasons I want to go here, that I think there are some good lessons to be learned about our hearts as we go through this and, and things to be on the lookout for, things that we may encounter and as we go and encourage us as we go through this. As this morning, I want to talk about passion and prayer, about prayer and fasting, that, that this whole process should be bathed in prayer. We want to see God work in us and through us and in this whole process as He moves us. And so we are in Nehemiah chapter 1. In the first 11 verses, the whole chapter pretty much. Hear then the Word of God. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekaliah. Now it came, it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanai, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I had asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heavens, of the heavens, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and who keep His commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open." To hear the prayer that your servant, that I now pray before you day and night, for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and we have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying that if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, and you keep my commandments, and you do them, though you were outcasts, and that you are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them, and I will bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom You have redeemed by Your great power and by Your strong hand. O Lord God, let Your ear be attentive to the prayer of Your servant and to the prayer of Your servants who delight in the fear of Your name. And give good success to Your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, the King. Pray with me. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word that has been preserved for us and for the generations. We thank You for Nehemiah and what You did in him and through him and the life of Your people. And even now, Father, we come to You this morning to teach us. 
to capture our hearts and our imaginations again with the prayer of this godly man. That our hearts might be lifted up in prayer. That our lives and our ministry might be saturated in such prayer. That we might be dependent upon You and seek from You that which we so long and desire to happen. For You are the Lord, the great God of heaven. It's to You that we come now in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are three books that belong together. All three of the books deal with God's people in this exile and the return from exile and His work among them as He restores them to Israel, to their place. It was a two-stage exile, if you remember the history of it, that in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians and a great portion of them were taken into captivity, but Judah remained. It did not fall and it persisted for another 150 years, but in 586 B.C., the Babylonians overcame the Assyrian Empire, besieged Judah, and this time were victorious. And Judah fell, and uh, the walls of Jerusalem were torn down, the temple was destroyed, and the people again of those lower kingdoms, the lower uh, parts of Israel, were taken into exile. In 539, a number of years later, the Persians rise up and swallow the Babylonian Empire. And Darius, who is the king in that time of conquest, was an open-minded man. And instead of taking more people into captive, he gave a decree that allowed his captive people to return to their lands. And the Jews were permitted to go home under the Persians. So in 538, a year or two later, some 50,000 Jewish exiles returned under Zerubbabel and Joshua. And this is a story you can read in the book of Ezra as they return and begin to rebuild the temple and the walls. But they encounter resistance in that project as they began to build, as is always the case when when God's kingdom advances and when things are being built, that there is often resistance and there are things that that happen. And so all the work ceased. uh, There were those who, who did not want to see that happen and to see Israel regain some strength. And so they petitioned the current... Uh, king in Persia and asked for the work to stop and the, and the, and the king ordered in Ezra 4.21 and said, therefore we will make a decree that these, uh, <clears throat> that these men be made to cease and that this city not be rebuilt. And all work ceased for a period of time. Under Haggai the prophet, we see that the work of the temple is resumed. It's finished in 5.16. The temple is, is finished. But it appears that the work on the walls never, never started again. It was never completed, never resumed. And if it had, then some other tragedy has befallen the walls because this many years later, 150 years from the time that they were destroyed, they are still in ruins. And so in verses 1-3, to we give this great historical detail. Time has, has passed. And it says that Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, and that is the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the current king. We know that because in chapter 2, verse 1, it says in the month of Nisan of the same year, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So he locates it very specifically in basically 445 B.C. in Susa, the citadel, the capital of Persia. 
And some travelers return from Jerusalem. Nehemiah's brother is among them. And they return from a trip there and they bring news. In verse 2, Nehemiah asks them about what's going on. Uh, how, how is the remnant doing? Those who returned? And what kind of shape is our homeland in? And he hears a tale of trouble and shame. That Jerusalem is still without its walls. 150 years later, they lie in ruins. And for ancient cities, this is a significant thing. You know, in those days, without walls, you were absolutely vulnerable to anything and everything. And as you even read the Old Testament and you hear the kind of stuff that goes on, without walls, you, it's a huge deal in the vulnerability. It's why in Proverbs 25, 28, it says that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Right? A man without self-control is like a city without walls, without uh, some protection. The city can't control what's going on because it's wide open on every side, in every direction. It's vulnerable to attack and to infiltration, to bandits. It's weak and shameful. And Nehemiah takes the news pretty hard. In verse 4 it says, As soon as I heard the words, I sat down and I wept. And I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. It hits him like a punch in the gut. Now, as far as I can tell, Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. He's never been there. He lives in the capital of Persia. He's not part of the remnant that returned. It's been 150 years since the destruction of Jerusalem. That's like in our history. That's uh, what happened 150 years ago in our history. Basically the Civil War. So it's that long ago in terms of the memory of the people, in terms of this happening. But even though it's been that long, Nehemiah has retained a very strong sense of identity uh, with God's people. That he is a faithful Jew who knows and loves Yahweh. He lives in Susa, but his heart is in Israel. His heart is with his people. And the plight of his people breaks his heart and and he reacts very strongly. What can be done? This is not the way it should be. He is concerned for their welfare. And he's a man of humility and dependence. Because what he does is he prays. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And then he begins this this prayer. But he is seeking God in prayer and fasting, he says, for days. Here's a man who knows if something is going to happen, if something will be done, it will be God who does it. Here's a man who knows that he's not going to rise up and save the day and do something. Here's a man that says, oh God, do something. Right, a man who knows and understands his dependence upon the Lord and that, that if he wants something you know, that is beyond his control, the God of heaven is able to do it. And so he seeks Him by prayer and fasting. And fasting is a spiritual discipline that is used as an aid to prayer. And it is and can be and should still be used as an aid to prayer. It's a way of denying ourselves in order to seek God. It's a way of denying ourselves and something in our lives to create space and to create, in a sense, hunger. We're reading this week with the staff or in the last few weeks in a book on spiritual disciplines and the author David Mathis says, fasting is an exceptional measure designed to channel and to express our desire for God and a holy discontentment in a fallen world. 
It's an expression of sorrow, an expression of repentance. It's an expression of desire to see God work, to do something. Spiritual desire, so it's a way to focus, a way to seek. When we want discernment, when we want to see spiritual growth, and when we're engaged in spiritual warfare, Jesus says at one point, this kind only come out by prayer and fasting. You know, there are times in our spiritual warfare where we fast and seek God to work in an extraordinary way. And Jesus in Matthew 9.15 says, the days are coming when the bridegroom is taken away. Jesus is taken from the disciples. And He says, then they will fast. I encourage us, even as we look at these things and look in our own lives, fasting is an aid to prayer. And then he addresses God as he is fasting. He addresses God in prayer. And the rest of chapter 1 is his prayer. And I just want to kind of unpack it for us a little bit uh, and then apply it to us. But in this seeking of God, he does a number of things. He uses God's covenant name. He knows God by his covenant name. And he prays in covenant. Um, His prayer is persistent. It's repentant. It's claiming of God's promises. And it stands in God's grace. But he, he prays in covenant. And for my, me, this is very important for us because it's still the way we need to be praying. And we'll talk about it a little bit at the end too. But he addresses God as Yahweh. The name that God gave His people. He established a covenant with them and He gave Him His name. And when they address Him, when they come to Him, they come in this covenant and they address Him as their covenant Lord. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. When He said, the disciples asked Him, how should we pray? He said, pray our Father. I'm not saying we can't call God by any other name, but I would say this. That we should, in a great part of our praying, address God as our Father. Because I do believe in many ways it's a new covenant name for for Him. That, that it's what we were taught in the ways that we pray because we have a new, in a sense, unique relationship to God in Christ. In the New Testament, Jesus is never referred to in all the epistles and the teaching on prayer and everything else. He's never called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the rest of the New Testament there. He is called the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And that many times. And, and there is there that this, He is the God now. We know Him. He is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't get me wrong. But in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son, in Jesus. And he is, he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Christ, you and I are adopted. And we become... Behold, what manner of love is this? That we have become the children of God. And He says, when you pray in Christ, say, Our Father... It is a claim, it's an incentive claiming of our covenant. I'm praying in Christ. It is through the blood of Christ. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And in this new covenant, when you pray through me, our Father who is in heaven. And let me say this as just an aside. His covenant is with us, His people. Not with America. And I say this because I, there, I keep bumping into it. And it really does something to me that, that unsettles me. I read a book a while ago. It was kind of put before me. The, the Harbinger came out. If you saw that, uh, I don't recommend it. But in the introduction, he makes the whole book is based on this thing that America is a covenant nation just like Israel. 
And my friends, we are not. There, there, there is one new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the last covenant. And we, He is not in covenant with any nation at this point except the, the nation, we, the holy nation, the people belonging to God who are from every tribe and nation and language and tongue. His covenant is with His people in the blood of Christ. And we have more in common with a, with a Ugandan believer than we do to with an unbelieving American. And while I'm a patriot in every way and would fight for the freedoms and, and love of my country, we need to understand that our true citizenship is in heaven and with the people of God. God's covenant is with us in Christ. We are His covenant people. He's taught us to pray our Father who art in heaven. And this is the way that Nehemiah prays. He prays to His covenant God, Yahweh. Oh, great God of heaven, the great and the awesome God. Jesus says, pray, our Father who art in heaven, whose name is holy, and whose kingdom is coming. Right? It's that same way that He begins His prayer in worship. He prays in covenant, and He begins in worship, acknowledging who it is to whom He is addressing Himself. The great and awesome God, who is a covenant-keeping God, Right? He says he keeps covenant and steadfast love. His love is faithful and it is steadfast because it is covenanted. Just like my love for my wife will be faithful and steadfast because it is covenanted. Right? And so there is this till death do us part. He is faithful to his people, to us. And his prayer is persistent. We see in verse 6 as he presses on, he says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. Hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel. He says, see me, hear me. Day and night my cry rises to you. It has captured his mind. It has captured his imagination. And it, so it has captured his spiritual life that he pursues this in prayer before God. Have you ever been moved so deeply by something? Wanted something so badly that it captures your heart and your imagination like this? It, the day and night before the Lord, you are seeking it from Him, knowing that, that if you ever have it, if it ever is to happen, that it will be God who does it. Instead of being anxious about everything, about spending worried-filled nights and sleepless days, that we would pray day and night that God would be our deliverer. Jesus tells a parable about a praying widow that ends saying, and so we ought to pray and not give up. And so he prays and he doesn't give up and his prayer is repentant personally, corporately, which is exactly how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, our covenant Father, who art in heaven, and hallowed be Your name. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive our debtors. And so, Nehemiah comes before the Lord seeking God's mercy. Acknowledging that sin caused God's judgment and their exile. In many ways, it was sin that brought the walls of Jerusalem down. And so he knows the way home. He knows for the way to restoration is through confession and repentance. Alexander McLaren says, the beginning of all true healing of sorrow 
is the confession of sins. There is a sense in which our sins have been covered and forgiven in the death of Jesus. That we stand clean and righteous. All of our sins, past, present, and future. There's not a fear in me that I'm going to sin my way out of His grace somehow. But even though we are clean, Jesus, you remember when when He's washing the disciples' feet and He comes to Peter and Peter says no and Jesus says yes and then Peter says, well then, not just my feet but my whole body. And then Jesus says a very curious thing. You don't need your whole... A man who has had a bath doesn't need to be washed again. I just need to clean your feet. And I do believe there's a picture there of the Christian life and something that He is saying. And He is talking about the cleansing that He provides. What He's doing on His knees, washing their feet is a picture of what He's about to do on the cross. The bath that we get in a sense. The cleansing that He gives. But He says, even a man who's had a bath needs his feet. The feet that touch the ground. You know, the dirty ground. There's a place for us to daily, in a sense, keep short accounts with God and to repent of our sin and, and to seek, in a sense, a fresh taste of His mercy. He confesses personally, but He also confesses corporately. This new generation has risen up that recognizes the sins of the past. Our denomination did this at General Assembly. There was a lot of debate about whether you can confess corporately for the sins of the past. You know, our denomination was formed out of the old PCUS church, the Southern Presbyterian Church. And there, during the period of the 1960s in the civil rights movement, there was a lot that went on. Silence and active resistance in that whole movement where the church did not step up. And there are many in this generation looking back, not only at the roots then, but but wanting to be free and clear and looking at this kind of thing, knowing that as a new generation has arisen, that can see the past very clearly, to say we are ashamed of our behavior. We are ashamed of the way that we did this. I wasn't there personally, but as I own this denomination, to be able to look back and to repent and for those who have gone before us and to pray that God would restore us and move us forward in health and in life. I think it was a very healthy thing to do to present, repent of the racism and the lack of Involvement of the church to stand for freedom. He prays God's promises and he claims them and he stands in God's grace. And I'm just going to sort of motor through those and hit them as we uh, talk here in the end about some applications because he, he does claim God's promises, what you said to Moses. And he stands in God's grace and says, We are your servants. We are your people. We are the redeemed of the Lord. And he stands there as he prays boldly that God would hear him. So let me just touch on a few applications as we go from here. There's a lot of things to be pulled out of here for us if you already haven't gotten a few. One of them is that corporate sense of identity with God's people. Their plight is my plight. As we stand and hear about a church in Uganda trying to put a roof on their building and we're building ours and we have so much. There is, is next Sunday is our Global Outreach Sunday. A Sunday where we actively do this. We gather on Sunday night, the prayer time at 5 o'clock. I would invite you all, whether you're in a small group or not, it'll be extended at 5 to probably 5.45 or 6. A time of corporate prayer for the missionaries that are here with us and for the church around the world. There's this sense where we ought to have this identity more with the church and the people of God around the world. 
almost in any other affinity. The suffering and persecuted church, our missionary efforts. That this church, even this church, would be your church. Our mission would be your mission and our needs would be your needs. Second thing is that Nehemiah's first instinct was prayer. What is your first instinct? Something troubling happens. Something troubling comes in your life. You hear bad news the way Nehemiah did. When troubled, his heart retreated to the stronghold of his God. Where does your heart retreat? Where do you run first? Do you have this cultivated habit of heart that when you hear something troubling, that you sit down? And you may weep, you may weep, but you do it before God. You may be prayer and fast. Pray and fast, but you do pray and seek the God of heaven, your covenant God, asking Him for those things that are burdening your heart. Psalm 59, 16 says, You have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. We see that in Nehemiah. God had been His fortress on this day. Is He your fortress? Do you run to Him? Do you hide there and seek from Him what you want? His praying was covenantal. Do you pray with the strong sense of the covenant, which is the foundation of your prayers? In other words, we dare not go alone. And I'll add, not only do we pray our Father, but Jesus taught, taught us to pray in His name. Whatever you ask in My name. And all of us pray, and at the end of our prayers, we say, in Jesus' name. Let me just tell you guys, in Jesus' name is not punctuation. Right? It's not punctuation. It's not something we tack on to the end. It's not a magic spell that we wave you know, at the end of a prayer. It's a covenant claim. Right? I don't pray. I don't come and pray by myself. I have brought these requests, just as Nehemiah brings his requests, and, he, and then I say them, I lay these things at your feet in Jesus' name. My covenant head. My Lord, in whom I have become your Son, and by whom only I can say, our Father, my Father. Right? And so, at the front end, our Father, and at the back end, in Jesus' name, is a covenant praying. That God would hear me, that He would see me. Because He has covenanted with me. Passion in praying. Have you ever prayed and fasted because you sought something so hungrily? with enough desire to drive you to your knees and to deprive yourself of food that God might hear you. He claims His promises. Deuteronomy 4.29, it says, but from here, this is in Moses where he says, you know, you promised to Moses on that day, you're going to get in the promised land and you're going to forget me and you're going to get rich and you're going to not need me and you're going to forget about me and you're going to go away from me. And he says, on that day, I will scatter you to the wind. And he says, but if from there. And I love that, if from there. I've preached that verse by itself. And just saying, but if from there. Where, where are you this morning? And maybe you're there. Maybe you feel scattered to the four winds. Maybe you feel like you have been further away than you should. But there's this promise that if from there you will seek the Lord your God, you will find Him. If you seek Him with all of your heart and all of your soul. Oh, he claims that promise. God, you said that you would. And so here I am, from there, in the four corners, seeking you. He says, you will find me, and indeed he is found. 
Will you pray as we go into this building project, as it starts to go up, we need to cry out, I believe, as Nehemiah bathes his concern in the building of the walls in prayer, seeking what he needs from God Himself, that as things go on out there, we want to be praying that God would protect everything that goes on out there and keep it in good order, keep it on time, protect us from things that, uh, that we may not discover from years from now even for the whole building process, that it will be on time, praying that the money that was pledged would come in, praying that more than we ask or imagine would come in. We need to keep our debt down so our mortgage is manageable and praying that God would open the floodgates of heaven and provide for us to seek Him, to provide as we move out there, to give us opportunities for ministry, to use us, to grow us, to reach the community, to be wise as we plan about that transition. leave with you just the image as I had as I was finishing this and thinking through all of these applications. And it, it just occurred to my mind that in the Old Testament, God's worship centered in the temple. And the walls protected the spiritual heart of Israel. and Protected the heart of worship in Israel with those walls that were around it. And, and then the temple and the walls are destroyed in Old Testament religion as we know it ceases to exist and to be. And he says, don't you know you are the temple? And the heart of worship is taken here. And I started thinking about the walls of my life. That this spiritual heart of worship here, and do I, are my walls up to protect the, the worship of God and the service of God in my life? And what what restoration and rebuilding do I need to do to have good, strong walls at the heart of my life with God and my worship would be right? Take that image and maybe ponder as you think about prayer and seeking God in all these ways. You would seek the walls around your own heart. Pray with me. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word that is living and true. And as we have run through it this morning, I pray that the truth and power of it would still come home. Oh, that it would come home. Hearts of spiritual passion and desire, hungering and thirsting for Your righteousness and seeking You covenantally in prayer to see You work in our midst and to restore and renew Your people. We know that You can and that You do. Well, hear our prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.